I believe one of the first anti-war films ever made like it's just sort of very much against the concept of war mm-hmm. but it's about uh, it's set during the first world war it's about a French captain um, who is sort of instructed to take his platoon over the trenches um, into what will most likely be a suicide mission but none of his soldiers actually want to go uh, because it will obviously be a suicide mission so none of them end up going and the higher-ups in the French military end up putting uh, three random troops from the platoon on trial for this, uh, which, uh, spoilers, ends with all of them being executed, despite the fact that they were just random troops, quite frankly. And it's, uh, it is a very good film. It has a very iconic ending sequence. Um, at the end, there's a bunch of sort of remaining French soldiers who are in Germany where they spend the whole film. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just in a bar, and this young German woman who works in the bar is forced to sing a song for them. It gets very emotional. Uh, they all start crying by the end of it. It's a very beautiful scene. Uh, yeah, but even like the three people who they pick for court martial, it's not quite random. They're picked by not quite um, Colonel Dax, who's mm-hmm. played by Kirk Douglas, but... I think lieutenants in the army mm, yeah. who picked them for kind of like, I guess, malicious mm-hmm. means. Like, I think, I don't know, one of them has a grudge against the other one. Mm, yeah. One of them's just like stupid. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like the idiot of the hood. Yeah, exactly. They all had a sort of a yeah. trouble of sorts with them. And then people. it's just the kind of exposition of their, I don't know, legal proceedings and mm-hmm. them facing it mm, yeah. tragically, yeah. The majority of the film is sort of a court setting where Kirk Douglas's character, Colonel Dax, um, acts as their sort of uh, lawyer, uh, in arguing in favor of them. And although he's sort of on the clear side, at least the film sides with him, uh, he has absolutely no chance at winning the case. And the three men are executed in the end. It's uh, certainly one of his lesser known films nowadays that he's made so much more famous and controversial films. But it's uh, definitely still a goldie. So you should check it out if you get a chance. Yeah. And then the next film I saw was uh, the one he did right after, Spartacus. Spartacus I've not seen in years. You're going to have to cover that one more. It's no problem. Uh, The last time I saw Spartacus was a little less than a year ago. I think it was the second time I'd seen it. Spartacus is a bit of an enigma in his filmography because despite the fact that it says Stanley Kubrick directed it, it wasn't really directed by him. It was directed more by Kirk Douglas. Uh, They liked working together on Pass of Glory so much they decided to work together on this one, but... Kirk Douglas very much had a specific idea of what the film should be that sort of overtook Kubrick's vision, and Kirk Douglas was a much more popular name at the time. Kubrick really only had Passive Glory and The Killing to his name by this point. Uh, so the film is essentially Kirk Douglas's film with Kubrick's name on it, but hmm. it is... I didn't know that. That's yeah. sweet. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And the film is about... Uh, I can't remember if it's Rome or Greece. I believe it's Rome. Ancient Rome, Ancient yeah. Rome, yes. Uh, it's about a soldier by the name of Spartacus who, uh, just born a regular guy, but ends up becoming a gladiator. He's sort of, like, sold into it. And he rises to the top. He becomes, like, one of the best gladiators. He has this sort of um, revolution amongst them, and he ends up becoming the leader of a sort of militia of sorts, if you know what I mean, uh, trying to just go against Rome to try to get their own freedom. And it doesn't end up working out for them. Um, There's this famous scene near the end where the Roman army are trying to find Spartacus. They've sort of cornered them all in some kind of valley of sorts and uh, they ask who is Spartacus and everyone there and by everyone I do mean everyone ends up standing up and yells out I am Spartacus and attempt to save him Mm -hmm. but uh, spoilers it doesn't actually end up working (laughs) for him Spartacus is a sort of forced into a fight with one of his best friends by the Roman uh, army at the end of the film he loses unfortunately and there you go 
but yeah, it is a very good film, uh, despite the fact that it isn't actually a Kubrick yeah. film of sorts. But famously, famously a long film. Oh yeah, it's it's like three hours. Oh, four yeah, minutes, it's I think. Three hours and twenty minutes. Three hours and twenty minutes. That is not short. Yeah, no. So it's it's a bit of a trek, but um, it's certainly worth it. It's uh, I would say one of the better's of the sort of late fifties, early sixties epic films. So if that's kind of your thing, you might want to check this out. And yeah, it's very enjoyable. And now we're going to get on to one of his more controversial films. This was the film where he started to get sort of uh, huge fame throughout the world. This was where he became a very household name. And that film is 1962's Lolita, which uh, was based off of the novel uh, of the same name, written by Vladimir Nabokov. I really hope I pronounced that right. And I think I've only actually seen the film once, and it was uh, about a few months ago. Have you seen the film recently, perchance? Uh, I think I saw it that time you were watching ah, it yeah. in Clivets. Oh, I've okay, seen, right. I've seen it before as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's it's fantastic. And is it his first work with Sellers, Peter Sellers? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yes, no, it is. Yeah, Peter Sellers is, is fantastic in it. Mm-hmm. Um, playing, what's his name? It's not he didn't play Humbert Humbert. He played Claire Claire Quilty. Yeah, Claire Quilty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so fantastic and kind of like images at the beginning and the end of some sort of like Xanadu type complex that yeah. he's created for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's kind of it's the story of a man who falls in love with Lolita, who's so he marries a woman and falls in love with her fourteen year old daughter, or yeah, that's right, even younger. Yeah, no, fourteen year old daughter. And essentially the rest of the film is him kind of grappling with his desire for her, mm-hmm. even though she seems far more mature than he does throughout the oh, entire film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just kind of themes of kind of sexuality and taboo, mm-hmm. which I guess hadn't really been covered that much in cinema up until then. Not really, no. The uh, the film was a huge controversy even before the release because of the uh, the content of the novel. Yeah, he was unhappy at how much the studios made him cut it down and mm. edit it and censor it back. Mm, that's right. I think he was quite disappointed with the film ultimately because mm. it wasn't how he wanted it to be. Mm, yeah. When I first saw it a few months back, um, there was obviously all this hype towards it. And being a Kubrick film, I, of course, expected it to be great. Um, and it, while it certainly isn't bad, it definitely wasn't uh, like phenomenal to the extent of some of his later films. Yeah. I, it is a very good film, and I do recommend people check it out. But it's just uh, it's not in the top half, I would say. Um, the controversy, I would say, nowadays is probably one of the more interesting things about it, as well as the performance of Peter Sellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he isn't the main character of the film at all, but it, most of my friends that I know have seen the film, I'll just keep watching it just for him because yeah. he's Peter Sellers. Steals the show, yeah. Oh, indeed he does. Um, but yeah, it is quite an enjoyable film nonetheless. Uh, if you're into... I was about to say if you're into liking young girls, which we don't endorse that here. No, not at all. So, yeah, you know what? You should just probably stay away from that film if that's the case. If you're into Nabokov, yeah. um, if you're into, like, I don't know, romance, mm-hmm. kind of like stigmatized romance, I guess, yeah. is probably the best way we can put it. Yeah, that's fair. Instead of, yeah. Yeah, this is the film for you. <laughs> um, or if you're just into good cinema, it's mm-hmm. it's a good film i always enjoy watching it Mm, some lovely shots kind of like it's got a classic kind of actress reveal it does um so the first time he sees sue leon is who's lolita Mm -hmm. oh it's dolores hayes sorry um lolita Mm -hmm. she's kind of sunbathing out in his 
mm. new girlfriend's backyard. Mm, yeah. Kind of lowers her sunglasses at him. Mm. It's very like I don't know. Kubrick knew what he was doing in terms of sexualizing young girls. He certainly did. <laughs> it's a little worrying, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're gonna go ahead and play a song for you guys. Uh, I think the first song we're gonna go with is called "Stranger Than Kindness" by Lolita Storm. Yeah, you get that. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy this song, and we will see you back here on the real world.
Are you a current UBC grad student? If so, then listen up because the Graduate Student Society lets UBC grads book rooms and spaces in the newly renovated grad student building. Be sure to take advantage of what the facility has to offer. The rooms come equipped with sound systems and can host up to 300 people. Even better, as grad students, you don't have to pay booking fees. Not a grad? Don't worry. The Tia Corner House is open to the public, as in the Kerner Pub, opening earlier next year. For more information, contact booking manager Rob at bookings at gss.ubc.ca. Uh, hello, and welcome back to The Real World on 101.9 FM CITR. Um, we're back with you here, uh, talking about Stanley Kubrick today. Um, an, a, a director of solace for many people in film society, so appropriate for this time of the year for most UBC students who have to be dealing with exams and essays, so... We like to turn to Kubrick and calm down a bit, yeah. watch his films, and the next up in his filmography that we're going to talk about, I believe, is Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And love the bomb I do, indeed. Uh, Dr. Strangelove is actually my personal favorite of all of Kubrick's films. Uh, it was made in 1964, sort of at the height of the Cold War, and uh, it was based off of a novel around the time that was sort of a serious thriller about what would happen if America accidentally launched a nuclear bomb on the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, this film, however, is a satirical black comedy on the concept um, that basically is about um, this one American general whose name is Jack D. Ripper, uh, who has gone insane and decides that the only thing he can do right now is... Uh, attack the Soviet Union with nuclear armaments. Uh, the American government tries to stop all the planes getting out, but due to one plane having a broken radio, they continue on going, and they drop a nuclear bomb on the Soviet Union. Uh, and it's just sort of about how the American government and the Russian, and the, sorry, the Soviet government react to that. Uh, and the film ends with one of my favorite endings to a film ever. Basically, the Russians have developed this sort of doomsday device, which would basically mean that if there were any nuclear armaments... Uh, dropped on the Soviet Union, uh, they would essentially automatically launch all of theirs all over the world, destroying the yeah. entire world. And that's exactly what happens. <laughs> Mutually assured destruction, as um, Dr. Strangelove puts it. Mm -hmm. Dr. Strangelove, played by Peter Sellers in one of his three roles in this film. Mm -hmm. He plays uh, Mo uh, Dr. Strangelove, who is a Nazi doctor the Americans have appropriated after the end of World War II. He also plays the President of the United States. Uh, I believe his name was Merklin Muffley. And he also plays an associate to uh, General Jack D. Ripper, um, Group Captain Lionel Mandrake. So he's playing both, well, sorry, thrice a British person, an American person, and a German person. Uh, he was also supposed to play a fourth role in the film as well, that of Major T.J. King Kong, who is the sort of uh, captain of the plane that drops the nuclear bomb. Uh, that was actually played by Slim Pickens, who's a famous Western actor. If you've ever seen the film uh, Blazing Saddles, he was one of the supporting characters in that. Very funny. Uh, yeah, and one of the most famous scenes in the film is when uh, Major King Kong, uh, well, he's got the nuclear bomb on his plane, and the, how do you put it, like the opening doors to drop the bomb are stuck. Yeah, the release won't 
yeah. release, I guess. So he he does it like any good American would. He gets up on that bomb, he opens the doors himself, and he rides that bomb all the way down to <laughs> wherever it lands in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Yeah. But it is it is an absolutely amazing film. Um, I've always been a huge fan of black comedy, so that's why I love this film. It's just very much about how everything keeps on getting worse and worse for the American government and the rest of the world. Uh, it also has Sterling Hayden, who's a very good actor from the 50s who was blacklisted uh, and only did a few films after that, this being one of them. Uh, he was also in Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, uh, which he played the main character, and I believe that was right before he was blacklisted. Uh, the film also has George C. Scott, who is a great actor. Uh, he played General Patton in uh, the biography of him in 1970. Uh, here he plays an American general who is one of the more saner people, but he's also a bit of a crazy jingoist oh, as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it's good stuff. He has this great quote where he says, uh, Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> Just gets me every time. No, he's one of the saner people, but at the same time, he's so kind of mm-hmm. bugged out and, like, insane. And it just... Everyone in this film is so crazy. Mm, yeah. And it just kind of makes you think these are the types of people who are kind of like... The world is hanging by a thread, according to. Mm, yeah. Like, the Cold War could have gone so poorly because people were juggling it and the people who were juggling it were kind of incompetent mm, that's right all Peter Sellers-esque mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah the Cuban Missile Crisis very much could have been the end of our world yeah. as we know it. and this film is very much kind of making fun of that um, but yeah it's arguably the sanest character in the film is Dr. Strangelove himself who if you haven't seen the film as I mentioned earlier is a Nazi doctor but he's also paralyzed He's so he can only ride around in a wheelchair he also seems to not have control of one of his hands and that his hand is always trying to kill him. Um, so yeah, it's very funny to see Peter Sellers sort of talking about... Is it trying hand. to kill him or is it trying to hire Hitler? It's, I think it was, was... At one point it tried to choke him, so oh, I'm assuming it was trying yeah. to kill him. Perhaps he just has a very Nazi hand yeah. that wants to kill him because <laughs> yeah. he's performed. And, but yeah, anyways, he's the whole time he's delivering his plan on how to save the world by sending everyone underground. Uh, he's trying to choke himself mm. at the same time. Um, but yeah, it is a it is a very good film. I highly recommend it. Uh, I believe the Rio Theater uh, in East Van is actually going to be playing it in the next couple of days. Uh, I could have sworn they were playing it on Tuesday. I meant to go, oh, yeah. but I couldn't for work. But oh, okay. Um, but yeah, if that is still playing, uh, you should definitely check that out. Um, I highly recommend it. It is very funny. Um, and if you have unfortunately missed it, well, you could probably buy it on DVD or something. Who knows? We could be playing it at the Norm Theater next year. Yeah. Yeah, so you might just want to wait around for that. And, yeah. All right, now I think we're going to go ahead and play another song. Uh, the film has a very famous ending sequence, in which we already mentioned, which basically the world ends. But there's a song that plays, uh, which is called We'll Meet Again by Vera Lynn. Uh, it was a song written in World War II uh, just to sort of inspire all the troops going away, just sort of like, oh, don't worry, we're coming back home. So it's uh, quite funny to hear this song playing as you just see footage of all these bombs exploding all over the world. So we hope you enjoy this song, and we will see you back here on CITR 101.9 FM. Don't know when, don't know when, but 
This message was brought to you courtesy of the Canadian Blood Services and CITR Radio 101.9 FM.
Uh, hello and welcome back to the real world on CITL 101.9 FM. We're currently looking at like 8.28 uh, this fine Thursday morning. Um, moving along with Kubrick's filmography, we'll come to one of his best known films, I'd say. Perhaps his best no known film. Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which he co-wrote with Arthur C. Clarke, mm -hmm. a famous science fiction writer. Mm -hmm. um, you'll probably know this film as either for not having sat through the opening 20 minutes perhaps yeah. set in like ancient history mm -hmm. prehistoric history mm, yeah. uh, with ape men I guess mm -hmm. fighting over a monolith that has appeared as if yeah. from nowhere kind of learning it transcending almost evolving mm -hmm. and then it flies back so one of these apes throws a bone into the sky and in one of the most famous transition shots, not transition shots, what it's are those? It's a smash cut. It's a smash cut. And one of the most famous smash cuts in history, the rotating bone in the air cuts to a spaceship. Yeah. Sort of a good analogy for just sort of a human's progression towards technology. Yeah, the human endeavor, the human, uh, human evolution yeah. and existence. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, so um, scientists in the future in 2001... This film was made in 68, so 2001 was the future back then. Mm -hmm. uh, scientists in 2001 have discovered a strange monolith on the moon mm -hmm. and go to investigate it, and they're all kind of trapped by the sound that it makes. They're all kind of given headaches is the way I kind of like mm -hmm. describe it. They all clutch their heads. They're all screaming. And then it's kind of, I don't know, not quite linked, but there's... There are these then two astronauts who are sent on a journey, just of discovery, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And they're in a spaceship which is run by a supercomputer, an artificial intelligence computer called HAL. It's one of the most sort of famous villains in all of cinematic history, I think yeah. it's fair to say. I can't let you do that, Dave. Uh, yeah, and essentially HAL goes crazy, kills one of them, and then the other one has no recourse but to like disarm Hal mm -hmm. and then do the rest of the journey by himself and the rest of the journey essentially just constitutes his going through a black hole mm -hmm. on the other side of which things are rather crazy yeah. as he travels through the black hole you get a very uh, psychedelic 60s kind of scene uh, lots of colors flashing at you I can imagine people must have loved that back then but, um, yeah, all in all, the film is about three hours. It has, I think, only 45 minutes or so of dialogue. So uh, for some more general listeners, it might not be your kind of film, but if you do sound interested in it, I highly recommend it. It is arguably Kubrick's best film, uh, certainly one of his most well-known. Uh, whenever people talk about sort of how Kubrick deserved Oscars and stuff like that, this is normally the one that people believe deserved like the, the most Oscars. Mm -hmm. It only it only got one for its visual effects. Yeah. yeah. But it's regarded as one of the best films of all time. Mm -hmm. It's uh, a few weeks ago we talked about Christopher Nolan's new film Interstellar. Uh, at least to me it seemed like Interstellar was very much uh, a sort of modern attempt of a 2001-like film. But I feel like despite the fact that I do love Nolan, I think uh, Kubrick pulled it off much better. And, yeah, I would just highly recommend that you all see the film. It's definitely an experience, one that you want to prepare for. Uh, it is a three-hour film, much like Spartacus. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely worth it. Oh, yeah. Like, lots of kind of... In the same vein as even, like, Lolita and some of his later films that we'll get to. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of sexual imagery, all, like... Like, 
classical music kind of plays over the entire film pretty much. Mm-hmm. Classical music is very much a recurring element he uses in all yeah. of his films. But then the, these kind of very like phallic shaped space kind of mm-hmm. space what do you have? like rockets essentially yeah. spaceships mm-hmm. just kind of going through into the unknown mm-hmm. yeah and then a lot of circular stuff just beautiful kind of like the choreography of the spaceships is mm-hmm. fantastic like kind of played with these this classical music yeah mm-hmm the film, like, whenever uh, people are making science fiction films, there's always a bit of a worry that as the years go on and the film sort of uh, fades into obscurity, it won't look sort of realistic as something that could be set in the future. And even though this film is supposed to be set in 2001 and it's now 14 years after that, it still looks very futuristic. It still looks like this is a possibility, except maybe in 2051 instead of 2001 or something, but who knows. Mm-hmm. Also, the, uh, the film actually had a sequel as well that wasn't directed by Kubrick. Uh, based off of Arthur C. Clarke's uh, sequel to the novel called 2010. Uh, it's not as good, but uh, Helen Mirren's in it, and she's pretty good in it, so it's got that going for it. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I would say stick with 2001 yeah. and skip 2010. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think we're going to go ahead and play another song for you right now. Uh, this song is a classic. I'm sure you've all heard it at least one point. It's uh, David Bowie's Space Odyssey. Space Oddity, sorry. <laughs> Came out the... Uh, the year after this film, I believe it was Bowie's first sort of big hit, and it's just a very sort of appropriate song, so I hope you enjoy it, because, I mean, who doesn't love Bowie? And we will see you back here on The Real World at CITR 101.9 FM.
Sprouts, you've ate here before. Community Eats is back for the summer. We are your local food co-op. We are your volunteer opportunity. We are your meeting place. We are your nutritious Friday lunch. We are sustainability. We are community. Eats every Friday. Come by with a reusable container, donate, and tell us what community means to you. Friday, 11.30 to 3 p.m. Food, fun, friends. You are back on The Real World uh, at CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, we were just talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey, and then we played David Bowie's Space Oddity, which came out about a year after. Very appropriate song. Uh, we also played Arcade Fire's Black Mirror, which is um, one of my personal favorite songs by them. Uh, the reason why we chose to play it was because uh, it's the same name as a TV show that's quite popular right now in the UK called Black Mirror, which uh, is an anthology show, and I feel like it's very Kubrickian in a lot of its episodes. Mm -hmm. um, I highly recommend you check out the show. I think it's certainly one of the best things coming out of the UK right now. But anyways, uh, back to Kubrick. So the next film in its filmography is another one of my personal favorites, uh, 1971's A Clockwork Orange. Uh, this is certainly one of his more controversial films uh, and definitely one of his more famous. It stars Malcolm McDowell in what was sort of the film that cemented his fame in film history. Uh, he plays this young delinquent in some sort of future Britain called Alex DeLarge, uh, who just loves three things. He loves rape, he loves ultraviolence, and he loves a little bit of the good old Ludwig von, referring to, of course, Beethoven. And he has this sort of gang of droogs, fellow criminals, with which he goes around doing his three favorite things. And then they betray him. He is sent to jail, and he undergoes this program in which it will sort of uh, take the desire to uh, do bad things out of him via uh, Pavlovian treatment, which brings up questions of uh, what is a man if a man cannot choose and stuff like that. And then the second half of the film is just him kind of getting payback for everything he's done very roughly. So it's quite an interesting film because you see this character who does all these horrible, horrible things, and then they take away his ability to do these horrible, horrible things, and he gets all these horrible things that happen to him. So do you feel sympathy for him? He is still a rather horrible person, but arguably even worse things are happening to him. And he's got the rehabilitation, state-mandated state, state mandated rehabilitation, so you assume mm -hmm. that he should be treated fairly. Mm -hmm. But he's kicked out of his parents' house. Mm -hmm. He has done unto him what he like he's beaten by the homeless mm -hmm. people that he has in the past beaten and his old droogs have become cops mm -hmm. in the time that he's being rehabilitated yeah. and in turn mm -hmm. beat him and then arguably the worst one he ends up at a, a house of an old victim who he had attacked which resulted in his uh, paralyzing as well as uh, having raped his wife who died after that killed her uh, with a massive Oh, no, no, that was, a, that was a different That was one. a different place? Yeah, that was, like, right before uh, they betrayed him. Uh, okay. Anyways, Quincy was referring to My a bit apologies. where a woman gets killed with essentially a, a massive phallus, I guess is the best way to put yeah. it. But, yeah, so, anyways, he raped this man's wife. He paralyzed the man, and he's been living on his own since, and he turns up at his house just sort of begging for help. Uh, the man initially doesn't realize who he is, but once he does, uh, drugs him, locks him in a room upstairs, 
and puts all these gigantic speakers in the room underneath and starts playing. Uh, I can't remember which Beethoven symphony it was, but no, but it was ninth. The, I think so. Yeah. Yes. But anyways, um, as sort of a result of his Pavlovian treatment, um, he finds that he gets really sick when he sees images of violence or sexuality. And one of the films that he was shown and subjected to the sickness while going through this treatment uh, was Triumph of the Will, which actually plays uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony at one point. So whenever he hears that, too, he gets really sick, which is sort of the ultimate torture for him. And this man just plays that song, having locked him in the room, and Alex ends up jumping out of the window to just try to end the pain, I guess. But anyways, uh, Clockwork Orange is, uh, I would argue, my second favorite film by him. It was actually the first Kubrick film I ever saw. Um, and then I watched Dr. Strangelove right after, so yeah, it was quite nice. But um, I was always worried about watching this film as a child because it just seemed like very sort of rough and violent, but um, like at the time, I could see how it would be considered very rough and violent. It's not that rough nowadays. Yeah. I mean, obviously the stuff that happens in it is horrible, but I mean, watch any horror film nowadays. By today's more standards, yeah, it's yeah, that's pretty right. tame. Mm-hmm. And uh, just yesterday, actually, I was watching a documentary called The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. It was a sequel to another documentary called The Pervert's Guide to Cinema. And they're both films about Slovenian philosopher and psychoanalyst Slavoj Žižek, who uh, is very popular in sort of film theory and critical theory and cultural studies. And uh, these two films are just about him talking about a bunch of different films and the sort of ideologies they portray. And he spoke about A Clockwork Orange in this film, as well as one of Kubrick's later films, which we'll get to and was talking about how um, in ideology you see these people who sort of, they don't know that what they're doing is for the ideology they exist in, but they do it nonetheless. And uh, Alex in A Clockwork Orange is someone who does know what he's doing and how it's helping ideology, but he does it nonetheless. He is sort of the, as uh, Zizek calls it, the inherent transgression. Uh, Ideology very much needs him and his horrible actions to sort of define itself and to sort of show like what they can't be, but nonetheless, there are still people like that, much like Alex. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the film, Alex uh, returns to this role. His treatment is reversed um, just because, well, ideology needs him to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's a a very good film. I highly recommend it. And then next is a a film that neither of us have seen, uh, Barry Lyndon. Um, What I do know about the film is Kubrick initially wanted to do a biography of Napoleon Bonaparte with Jack Nicholson playing him. But that didn't work out, so he made this film instead because he had already paid for the costumes and the sets. But it's just a biography of a fictional man who is, uh, I believe, called like one of the luckiest men of all time until I think there's a duel that happens at one point, which he loses and ends up getting wounded, and then his life just kind of uh, goes to hell after that. But anyways, after that is arguably Kubrick's most well-known film mm-hmm. nowadays, The Shining, with Jack Nicholson, as well as the lovely, as always, Shelley Duvall. Um, I believe Quincy has a few things to say about that film. Uh, yeah, The Shining is one of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. Um, I really got into it when we showed it as a double bill at the Norm Theater with Room 237, which is a documentary all about critical interpretations of The Shining by film theorists or just conspiracy theorists. Um, it tells the story of Jack Torrance, who, Jack Torrance, who with his family um, over the winter time is going to be the caretaker of the Overlook Hotel, which closes every winter because up in Boulder it, um, like, snows a lot. So, essentially, over the span of, like, around six months, him and his family, his wife, 
Wendy and his son Danny. They're trapped up at this hotel and he intends to write a novel, use the time to write a novel, but the f hotel is kind of famously the home of a shining, which is this strange kind of like it's a form I, of like telekinesis. Yeah, or it's some sort of telekinesis. Uh it was built on like an Indian kind of on Indian land. It was mm -hmm. like taken from the Indians and then there were a number of battles that happened and then I think in the 50s or the 60s it said that one of the old caretakers murdered his entire family and then killed himself and so over the course of the film Jack is clearly kind of progressing into insanity and his wife Wendy and Danny are kind of just hanging out by themselves and then strange things keep happening Danny has all these Danny also has the shining uh, I believe Danny has the shining because Jack was meant to have twins and uh, Danny's twin who was never born is kind of sublimated into his mind mm -hmm. and so he has kind of he speaks to Tony a lot um, he kind of like moves his finger his index finger and speaks in a strange voice mm -hmm. uh, there's the famous line red rum red rum uh, that's Tony so that's why I think Danny has the shining mm -hmm. and there's also a chef whose name escapes me right now uh, Halloran yeah, yeah. Halloran the chef who also has the shining and who can tell that uh, Danny and Wendy are in danger when Jack is descending into madness. Mm -hmm. And essentially, uh, after a number of weird kind of um, hallucinations even, mm -hmm. uh, Jack tries to kill both of them. Mm, yeah. um, also being kind of persuaded to do so by the past... Uh, so like a bartender. Yeah, bartender, but also... I think he was meant to be the caretaker at one point as well. Mm, yeah. And then you get the famous scene where he's kind of slicing down the door to get to Wendy. And mm. here's Johnny. Mm, yeah. Cuts the door down. She's holding... She's holding... Some kind of knife. Phalluses the whole time. Yeah. Coming out, the Kubrick seemed to be pretty into phalluses. Mm -hmm. She's holding a knife. She's smoking cigarettes throughout the whole film. Clutching a bat at one point. Mm, yeah. yeah, just... Uh, I'm pretty sure that the film's about impotence there are mm -hmm. these great shots where um jack is just throwing a tennis ball against a wall and it just keeps bouncing back at him mm -hmm. there's about a five minute shot where uh wendy brings him breakfast in bed and while they're talking he's just poking one of two eggs on the plate with a bit of bacon mm -hmm. the other one untouched another kind of hint that he was supposed to have twins but didn't in the end uh and a number of things. He kind of makes impotent the radio. He kind of like dismantles the snow cat that they have, the only means of escape. Mm -hmm. And he is unable to navigate the labyrinth, the, the maze that kind of is up there with the overlook and mm -hmm. is the, the ultimate kind of cause of his demise. And yeah, he's unable to kill either uh, Wendy or Danny. Mm -hmm. uh, but we should move on though so we can cover the rest of Kubrick's. Mm, yeah. We only have a couple of minutes left. Yeah. But anyways, uh, so the next film in his filmography is Full Metal Jacket. Uh, it's a film that's arguably more famous for its first half than its second half. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's film set during the Vietnam War. The first half is the training of several recruits. Uh, the opening scene is they sort of get their heads shaved. Uh, they meet their drill instructor, uh, played by Arlie Ermey. Uh, that was his uh, breakthrough role. You've probably seen some of the footage of him yelling at his various recruits and all. And anyways, um, it's just sort of showing the sort of degradation of the human state that have to become in order to become this killing machine to fight in this war. And the first half ends with uh, 
one of the recruits, Vincent D'Onofrio, who's uh, actually in the current Netflix Marvel show, Daredevil, which is quite good. Uh, but anyways, he ends up going crazy, kills the drill instructor, and then himself. And then the second half of the film is actually set in Vietnam during the war, as you follow another one of the recruits, uh, who's become a journalist for the military, just sort of traveling throughout Vietnam, uh, reporting on everything and just all the horrors he sees. Uh, the last scene in the film is the uh, sort of soldiers he's with, they are attacked by a sniper, and they're just trying to fight back against the sniper. They end up going inside the building that the sniper's in and finding out she's just a little girl, no older than 12 or 13, and they end up killing her for that. And it is a very good war film. Um, it's quite a lot like Paths of Glory in that it's very anti-war, but whereas Paths of Glory is more about the sort of legality of the military and the bureaucracy, this is definitely more from the soldier's perspective. And it's a, a very good film as well. Uh, yeah, questioning all forms of violence. Mm, yeah. uh, it seems kind of Matthew Modine, who plays James Joker Davis, mm -hmm. uh, is kind of grappling with the reasons that they're in Vietnam the entire time. Mm, yeah. And he's the one who eventually kills the sniper at the end. That's right. But when he's kind of challenged to do so, she's mm -hmm. asking for it from him, but he doesn't think it's right to kill her. Mm -hmm. But he does in the end. So it's kind of the dealing with all these questions of when is it good to kill if ever mm. and no i enjoyed it a lot i remember having a big argument after watching this film with someone who didn't care for it <laughs> and i would defend it to the end yeah no that's fair but not more than i would defend kubrick's final film mm -hmm. eyes wide shut which it would stand <laughs> as perhaps my favorite film of all time really uh yeah, yeah i i love eyes wide shut it's fantastic it's most mm -hmm. definitely cruise's best film tom cruise mm -hmm. Uh, it tells the story of um, Dr. William Harford, mm -hmm. uh, who is a kind of glamorous doctor. No. Uh, he and his wife, played by Nicole Kidman, um, go to these parties, and they go to one party, and he's being kind of like approached by all these models, and while she dances with another man who'd like to sleep with her. Mm -hmm. And he goes upstairs, and he helps um, this friend of his with a drunken prostitute, or not a drunken prostitute, a prostitute who's uh, overdosed on heroin. Yeah. Uh, like, perfectly naked there on the sofa. And mm -hmm. he helps her out and then leaves. And then that night, he and uh, Alice, his wife, get high. And she tells him this story of mm -hmm. being on vacation with him. And essentially, she fantasizes about having sex with uh, a soldier or, mm -hmm. like, a sailor in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And throughout the rest of the film, there's a lot of, like, it's basically his search to kind of reconcile this in his head by having sex with someone else. He ends up at a strange party, which is kind of, it's, I wouldn't even know what to call it, like an orgy, mm. a rich kind of orgiastic feast of pleasures, mm, yeah. where everyone's dressed in kind of... Uh, They're dressed in like masks and like, yeah, like capes and stuff. Yeah, like carnival masks, yeah, yeah. Uh, big capes. Uh, there were naked women everywhere, but like kind of like approaching this these men who are kind of clearly rich mm. in this mansion and he gets kicked out and he goes through this kind of I don't know weird adventure mm, yeah. uh, where he's just grappling with his own sexuality mm -hmm. and it's a wild film I would highly recommend it to anyone it kind of it's all about Christmas and mm -hmm. sex and kind of pestilence and all of these things wrapped up in one mm. uh, anytime like it'll change the way you look at fairy lights mm, yeah uh and costumes and tuxedos as well as tom cruise yeah and doctors and tom cruise and everybody yeah <laughs> highly recommended yeah 
All right, well, that was our show for today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we're going to close off with a song by Crystal Castles entitled Crime Wave. We hope you enjoy it. And uh, we will see you back here next week on CITR 101.9 FM at 8 a.m. You have been listening to The Real World.
Welcome to the Community Living Show here on the National Community Radio Association Networks, National Campus Radio Association Networks. 